Welcome to Academic Regalia, the podcast where I, Jacob Ward, regale you with the history of higher education. This episode of Academic Regalia is brought to you by generous support from Deadlines. Defined by Merriam-Webster as a date or time before which something must be done, a deadline is what is prompting me to record this show. Learn more about Deadlines by looking at your calendar and acknowledging the existential dread it instills within you. Deadlines, the only reason I ever get anything done ever. Welcome to the first episode of Academic Regalia. In the first two episodes of this show, because I have to start somewhere, I'm going to start with America's colonial colleges. These are the institutions of higher learning in what would become the United States, which were chartered prior to the American Revolution. Beginning with Harvard in 1636 and continuing through Dartmouth in 1769, each of these pre-revolutionary institutions stand today as well-respected institutions of higher learning. The colonial colleges, in order of their dates of founding, and listed by their modern names are as follows. The aforementioned Harvard University in Massachusetts, the College of William and Mary in Virginia, Yale University in Connecticut, Princeton University in New Jersey, Columbia University in New York, the University of Pennsylvania in, you guessed it, Pennsylvania, Brown University in Rhode Island, Rutgers University in New Jersey, and Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. In this episode, I will be discussing the first four, Harvard, William and Mary, Yale, and Princeton. Without any further ado, let's start with Harvard. Harvard University, named for the Cambridge-educated Puritan minister John Harvard, was established in Newtown, Massachusetts in 1636 by a vote of the Great and General Court of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, with an appropriation of 400 pounds sterling. In 1638, Newtown was renamed Cambridge in honor of the English Cambridge from which many of the town settlers came. Upon his death that same year, John Harvard left to the college his library of 400 books along with half of his estate. In 1642, Harvard graduated its first class of students, nine in total. Harvard was strongly influenced by the Puritan ideologies of early Massachusettsans. It was important to the settlers that their leaders be well-educated, not just in biblical learning, but also in literature and science. Put this way by Samuel Eliot Morrison, the two cardinal principles of English Puritanism, which most profoundly affected the social development of New England and the United States, were not religious tenets, but educational ideals, a learned clergy and a lettered people. Harvard was central to these ideals, as it would come to train, as phrased by Frederick Rudolph, the schoolmasters, the divines, the rulers, and the cultured ornaments of society. Stepping away from Harvard's history specifically, one of the more interesting things I've learned about Harvard is its governance. Rather than a single board of trustees typical of many colleges and universities, Harvard is administered by two boards, the President and Fellows of Harvard College, also known as the Harvard Corporation, and the Board of Overseers. The Harvard Corporation consists of 13 members, including the President and Treasurer of the University. The board, quote, exercises fiduciary responsibility with regard to the university's academic, financial, and physical resources, and overall well-being, end quote. It is responsible for approving budgets, major capital projects, endowment spending, and tuition, among other things. The Board of Overseers, or as I found it more formally in some places, the Honorable and Reverend the Board of Overseers, consists of 30 members directly elected by Harvard alumni. Additionally, the President and Treasurer of Harvard serve on the Board of Overseers in ex officio capacities. 
This board functions in a less hands-on fashion compared to the corporation. It influences Harvard's strategic direction, counsels university leadership, and has the power of consent to certain corporation actions. In modern times, Harvard is home to 2,400 faculty members and nearly 22,000 students, of which 6,700 are undergraduates. Harvard boasts 371,000 living alumni, including 48 Nobel laureates, 32 heads of state, and 48 Pulitzer Prize winners. Moving nearly 500 miles to the southwest, let's now turn our attention to the College of William and Mary, located in Williamsburg, Virginia. Chartered on February 8, 1693, by King William III and Queen Mary II of England, the College of William and Mary was to be, quote, a perpetual college of divinity, philosophy, languages, and other good arts and sciences, end quote. The College of William and Mary had close ties to several founding fathers, including George Washington, who earned his surveyor's license from the institution. Presidents Thomas Jefferson, John Tyler, and James Monroe all attended William and Mary as undergraduates. As it was founded under royal charter, William and Mary was established as an Anglican institution, meaning students were required to be members of the Church of England, and the institution's faculty were required to declare adherence to the 39 Articles of Religion, which define the doctrine of the Church of England. The founding of the institution was not without its detractors. Notably, Their Majesty's Attorney General is quoted as saying, after hearing the suggestion that the college might serve to save souls, quote, Souls? Damn your souls! Raise tobacco! End quote. If one is familiar with the agricultural history of Virginia, one knows Virginians certainly took the demand to heart. In 1776, when the colonies cut ties, to put it lightly, with Great Britain, William and Mary was no longer an institution of the crown and began operating as a private institution. In May of 1861, it was decided the College of William and Mary would be closed for the duration of the Civil War, as the college's president, faculty, and most of its student body enlisted in the Confederate Army. During the war, the college building was used for military purposes, first by the Confederacy and then by the Union, when the city was taken by the North in May of 1862. Following the war, the school reopened in its ruined building in 1865, but faced financial difficulties over the next few decades, including a closure from 1881 to 1888. In 1906, William and Mary became a public institution of higher learning following an act of the Virginia General Assembly. It first began admitting female students in 1918. At present, the College of William and Mary has nearly 6,300 undergraduates and nearly 2,500 graduate students, taught by 664 full-time faculty members. Heading back to the north, our next institution is located in New Haven, Connecticut. Yale University, originally named the Collegiate School, was chartered in 1701 in Saybrook, Connecticut. Until 1716, when the school finally settled in New Haven, it operated in several locations and in as many as three places at one time. In 1718, the Collegiate School changed its name to Yale College in recognition of a donation, at the urging of Cotton Rather, amounting to approximately 550 pounds sterling from Elihu Yale, a Boston-born Englishman who earned his fortune working for the East India Company. While it cannot be considered an offshoot of Harvard, 
Many of Yale's founders were Harvard men who had grown disgruntled with the declining Puritan orthodoxy at their alma mater, including Mather, who at one point served as a fellow of the Harvard Corporation. As with the students of other colonial colleges, Yale graduates were highly influential in the American Revolution. Twenty-five Yale men served in the Continental Congress and four signed the Declaration of Independence in 1776. In 1779, when the British invaded New Haven, they were convinced to leave the city without burning it by a Yale graduate who served as secretary to the British general. Over the following century, Yale grew from its humble beginnings to include a medical school, a law school, a school of divinity, and the first college art museum in the Western Hemisphere. In the late 1870s, the game of American football was developed by Yale undergraduate Walter Camp. One of the more adorable stories from Yale's history is that of Handsome Dan, the university's mascot, a bulldog who was purchased from a New Haven blacksmith in 1889. The most recent in the Handsome Dan line, Handsome Dan the 18th, joined the ranks in September of 2016. Yale is also home to one of my favorite a cappella groups, a group of gentlemen songsters known as the Whippenpoofs, who will celebrate their centennial next year. Yale's student body consists of nearly 5,500 undergraduates and nearly 6,900 graduate and professional students. Yale's faculty boasts more than 4,400 members. A 130-mile trip southwest on U.S. Route 1 delivers us to Princeton, New Jersey, home of Princeton University. Princeton, founded in 1746 as the College of New Jersey, situated in Elizabethtown, was established as a Presbyterian institution. Moving to Newark, then New Brunswick over the next few years, the college moved to Princeton in 1756. Princeton was a product of the Great Awakening, which centered religion more on conversion and individual experience than on organized worship common in the more established churches. Because of this movement, much of Princeton's instruction centered on the training of clergy, until John Witherspoon, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, became president of the college in 1768, and transitioned instruction toward preparing the next generation of American leaders. Very early predecessors to America's Greek letter social fraternities, and among the first extracurricular organizations at American colleges, the American Whig and Cleosophic Debating Societies were formed at Princeton around 1770. These sorts of organizations likely owe their origin to the atmosphere of political discourse present in the colonies at that time. Aaron Burr, a member of the Cleosophic Debating Society, third vice president of the United States, and political rival to Alexander Hamilton, is a notable Princeton alum. In Hamilton, which I had the pleasure of seeing last weekend, hashtag Hamilbrag, Alexander meets Aaron Burr in the second number, and Hamilton describes a disagreement with Princeton's bursar. The story goes that Hamilton had initially been accepted to Princeton, but then had his admission rescinded because he wanted to pursue an accelerated degree, which is something Burr had been allowed to do. In his seminal 2004 biography of Hamilton, Ron Chernow describes interactions between Hamilton and Witherspoon, which eventually led to Hamilton's rejection from Princeton. However, Chernow bases this story on accounts from Hamilton's close friends Hercules Mulligan and Robert Troop, which brings the impartiality of the story into question. In fact, a Princeton librarian points out that there is no official record that Hamilton was ever granted admission to Princeton. But regardless of its authenticity, it makes for a good story, and some excellent rhyming from my man Lin-Manuel. 
This concludes this episode's Hamill Tangent. Establishing some additional revolutionary bona fides, with significantly more veracity than the previous story, the college's Nassau Hall served as the United States Capitol from June through November of 1783. More than a century later, in 1896, the College of New Jersey finally changed its name to Princeton University. Interestingly, another century later, Princeton's old name would become the name of a state-run institution located in Trenton. As one might expect of a prestigious school like Princeton, its graduates have gone on to serve in a number of high-ranking offices. Three currently serving Supreme Court justices, Alito, Sotomayor, and Kagan, are Princeton graduates. Former First Lady Michelle Obama graduated from Princeton in 1985. 28th President of the United States Woodrow Wilson, who served as Princeton's 13th President, is the namesake of Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. And, as I've shared this information about each of the other schools, I'll conclude with where the university stands today. More than 1,200 faculty members at Princeton serve the university's 2,700 graduate and 5,200 undergraduate students. Thank you for listening to the first part of this episode about America's colonial colleges. Join me in part two where I will discuss Columbia, Pennsylvania, Brown, Rutgers, and Dartmouth. Thanks again to Deadlines for their generous support. Deadlines, the only reason I ever get anything done ever. This has been Academic Regalia, a podcast about the history of higher education. Check out the podcast online at academicregalia.com for show notes and additional information. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at RegaliaPod, and you can follow me at Jacob C. Ward. Here's your regalia fact of the show. A pink tassel worn on a graduation cap indicates the graduate has earned a degree in music. Thanks for listening!